Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Cultural Affairs, the Florida Council of Arts and Culture, and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund, the Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, and by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Broatmarkle, and coming up on the program, author, folklorist, and activist Stetson Kennedy died in 2011. This week would have been his 100th birthday. Oral history, of course, is a participant and a witness, at least. And uh, they're, they're seeing it with all their sensory organs. And for that reason, it has more validity from my point of view. We'll discuss some historic Florida postcards. The nature of postcards is, it varies widely, and different time periods reflect different societal changes. And we'll talk about the state's first professional football team, the Miami Seahawks. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. I done spent my last three cents Mailing my letter to the president didn't make a show, I didn't make a dance, so I'm swinging over to this independent chain. Stetson Kennedy writing his name in. Stetson Kennedy writing his name in. I can't win out to save my soul. That's what's got me out here walking and talking Knocking on doors and windows Wake up a rundown election morning And scribble in Stetson Kennedy The song Stetson Kennedy was written by folk legend Woody Guthrie in support of Stetson Kennedy's independent campaign for the U.S. Senate in 1950. The song was rediscovered and recorded by Billy Bragg and Wilco in 2000. Stetson Kennedy's social activism and the books that came from it have made him a Florida icon. Stetson Kennedy's career began in 1937 when he joined the WPA's Florida Writers Project. At the age of 21, he was named head of the unit on folklore, oral history, and socio-ethnic studies. Well, it was the Great Depression for one thing, and I didn't have a job along with tens of millions of other Americans. And uh, at the same time, President Roosevelt had organized something called the Federal Writers Project, and I thought this would be an opportunity for a 21-year-old uh, to start a writing career. So. I signed up for the Florida Writers Project, and in a short time they did uh, elevate me to the, that position. I was wearing three hats. Uh, Zora Neale Hurston, as a matter of fact, was uh, my, I was her boss. She was not an easy one to boss, I can tell you. She fortunately worked out of her home in Eatonville, and I was in Jacksonville, so it was like that. Still, it was Hurston's lack of emphasis on racial difficulties that inspired Stetson Kennedy to make the issue a focal point of his work. Do free association with me and Zora, the first thing I think of is a little story she sent in. 
said one day God was on his way to Palatka, and him and St. Peter was hoofing it, and it went on from there. <laughs> so everything she sent in was a, a real jewel. Uh, Alan Lomax was also a good friend of mine, colleague, and he said that in the field Zora was absolutely magnificent. He was recording in Eatonville with Zora in as early as 35, and they went on out to the Everglades and then to the Georgia Sea Islands. Yeah, Zora was, was a mess. <laughs> uh, our politics uh, were very different. Uh, uh, she never turned in any black po protest law, for example. And of course, that was one of the very few forms that the blacks could protest. If it didn't rhyme and you didn't dance a jig the while, you were dead. Uh, but Zora chose to ignore all that stuff, and so I made it one of my specialties. Zora Neale Hurston's strong will is well known, and Stetson Kennedy is not the only person who had difficulty supervising her in a work setting. When Mary McLeod Bethune hired Hurston to run the drama department at Bethune-Cookman College, the two women disagreed about almost everything, and Hurston left the school after less than a year. Hurston's Harlem Renaissance contemporaries complained that she did not criticize race relations strongly enough in her writings, a view shared by her Florida Writers Project supervisor, Stetson Kennedy. Hurston grew up in Eatonville, the first incorporated municipality in the United States entirely governed by African Americans. This gave her a unique perspective on race and a strong sense of independence. From 1937 to 1942, Stetson Kennedy lugged around a recorder the size of a coffee table to record the oral histories, tall tales, and folk songs of a diverse group of Floridians from cracker cowboys to Greek sponge divers to turpentine industry workers. Actually, it was a precursor to the uh, wire recorder came next uh, before the tape recorder. And this recorder was like a, a coffee table, except it took two or three good men to lift it. When we wanted to go out on the railroad tracks or on the pogey fishing boats, uh, we had to get some manpower. And it was uh, on the tracks, it was powered by two automobile batteries. So that's, that's what we had to work with. I called it the thing. The recordings that Stetson Kennedy made in the cities, towns, and rural backwoods of Florida led to the classic 1942 book, Palmetto Country. This important social history of Florida is being republished by the Florida Historical Society Press with a new afterword and 80 historic photographs. It was one of the first volumes in the American Folkways series, edited by Erskine Caldwell. And uh, we really pioneered in oral history. No one had ever heard of it. At, up at that time, talking about 1935 and six. As a pioneer of oral history, Kennedy is pleased to see how the field has advanced in recent decades. Yes, uh, just recently at the Library of Congress, uh, they've launched something called StoryCorps, in which these streamlined uh, sound studios on wheels uh, are touring the country and uh, taking oral histories uh, from coast to coast. And they uh, honored me with letting me kick it off with an interview. And yes, indeed, it's come, come a long way. I, I'm a great believer in oral history because uh, I call it the dictatorship of the, the footnote. The, the academicians uh, are quoting each other you know, instead of uh, going out and getting first-hand primary source material. And oral history, of course, is a participant and a witness, at least. And uh, they're, they're seeing it with all their sensory organs. And for that reason, it has more validity from my point of view.
Some historians argue that oral histories are sometimes less reliable than more traditional research sources because people's memories are not always accurate. Kennedy believes that the best history comes from the recollections of everyday people. It's uh, uh, being there and uh, telling history from the bottom up is, of course, history. It's the little man that makes history and not the generals. And uh, so I like to hear from the little man. Folk musician Woody Guthrie, best known for the song This Land is Your Land, was a big fan of Stetson Kennedy's work. Guthrie spent many of his last years living in Kennedy's house in Beluthahatchee Park. I recall Guthrie saying at one time, uh, Stetson's not exactly a folklorist. He's a po-focused, uh, by which he meant, uh, I suppose, a champion of the poor, uh, one of the folk, and not writing from, from some other point of view. Yes, Woody, I uh, spent a lot of time at my place up in St. John's County. And in fact, we just discovered 80 plus songs that he wrote in St. John's County, uh, all about my place and uh, the wildlife. And uh, I remember one song called Baby Buzzard. Says, Baby Buzzard, uh, look over yonder in that limousine, some of the rottenest stuff you ever seen. And <laughs> So on, 80 songs here in Florida, and it was all new material for Woody. He was writing about, he'd pick up manuscripts. I was overseas, but he'd pick up my manuscripts and ended up writing, turning them into songs. And things like chain gang and peonage and sweat boxes and things Woody had never thought about before. Uh, he made songs out of them. It was Stetson Kennedy's infiltration of the Ku Klux Klan and other white supremacist groups that earned him national and international recognition. Using the name John Perkins, Kennedy was able to secretly gather information that helped lead to the incarceration of a number of domestic terrorists. These experiences led to the 1954 book, I Rode with the Klan, which was later republished as The Klan Unmasked. I spent a lot of time in front of the mirror, you know, practicing the N-word and things like that. Uh, I didn't really have the face for it. In fact, I almost got killed. Uh, an interviewer came down from New York and I cautioned him about, you know, uh, blowing my cover. But he goes back and writes about this intense young man with a poet's face. And that almost got me killed. <laughs> there weren't that many of them in the Klan. As racial tensions were rising in the United States in the 1950s, Kennedy was having difficulty getting his books exposing bigotry published. The French existentialist philosopher Jean-Paul Sartre, best known for the play No Exit, published Kennedy's book The Jim Crow Guide in Paris in 1956. I first uh, infiltrated uh, during the war when the Klan was afraid that uh, President Roosevelt might uh, prosecute them under the War Powers Act. So they didn't put on their robes and they changed their names to various things like uh, American Shores Patrol and American Gentile Army and things like that. So that's how it all began. And yes, it's, it was exciting to put it mildly. Uh, when I went overseas some years later, I thought I'd get away from my nightmares, you know, being caught. But in Paris, it was raining frequently and the French traffic cops wore white rubber raincoats with capes and hoods, and their hand signals were very much like the Klan signals, so I kept on having nightmares. Although he never forgot his roots as a native Floridian, born in Jacksonville on October 5, 1916, Stetson Kennedy did choose to live abroad for about a decade. 
Well, McCarthy was going on. Uh, Eisenhower was president, and he was, as presidents go, he wasn't all that bad. But there was McCarthy. And um, no, I went over to testify about slave labor uh, in the United States uh, before the United Nations in Geneva. And I went with a one-way ticket and $8 left over. So I was pretty much obliged to stay until I could. <laughs> and it took me eight years, so to speak, to raise the round trip home, uh, during which time I saw most of Europe and North Africa and uh, across Eastern Europe as far as China. I was, I think, the first uh, independent journalist to get into China. In, uh, I believe it was. Harry T. Moore was an educator and civil rights activist who founded the Progressive Voters League, registering tens of thousands of African-American voters in Florida. He was a statewide leader of the NAACP and fought for equal treatment for African-Americans in the justice system. Before he was killed when a bomb exploded under his home on Christmas night 1951, Harry T. Moore endorsed Stetson Kennedy's campaign for the U.S. Senate. Uh, Moore and I went back, well, I, I was on the Moore case before it happened, you might say. I had announced for the United States Senate as an independent, colorblind uh, candidate for total equality. This is 1950, when, uh, you know, it took a lot less than that to get you killed. And Moore's organization of, of black Floridian voters uh, called a meeting and invited the Democratic and Republican candidates and me to speak to them and I'm the only one who showed up and so they endorsed me unanimously and so that's how it, it didn't really begin there because I had attended uh, meetings with more state NAACP meetings in Ocala and Orlando uh, so that uh, we were acquainted before that campaign but I'm uh, always felt guilty that the feeling that uh, my campaign, his endorsement of it, uh, played a major part in getting him killed. Stetson Kennedy's classic Florida book, Palmetto Country, is published by the Florida Historical Society Press. I ain't the world's best writer, ain't the world's best speller, but when I believe in something, I'm the loudest, yeah. If we fix it so you can't make no money on war, well, we'll all forget what we words killing folks for find us a peace job equal and free will dumb matters do pop in a salty sea well this makes Stetson Kennedy the man for me Stetson Kennedy died in 2011 he would have been 100 years old this week the new exhibit, Stetson Kennedy's Multicultural Florida, is opening at the Brevard Museum of History and Natural Science in Cocoa on Saturday, November 12th, in conjunction with the Florida Frontiers Festival. More information is at myfloridahistory.org. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. I'm sending a postcard. I don't care who sees what I've said. Joining us now is Ben DiBiase, Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. Ben, you have here a collection of more than 14,000 postcards from Florida. 
Yeah, that's right. The A to E Parish Postcard Collection, which is part of the Florida Historical Society's broader Florida History Collection, is one of the largest single collections of materials that we house here at the Research Library. Uh, And as you uh, said, it's uh, uh, primarily comprised of postcards. Uh, And postcards are are kind of interesting, at least in American history. Uh, They date back from about the mid-19th century, uh, in 1861, when the U.S. government first passed an act that allowed for uh, private individuals to print cards with messages on the back uh, and an address on the front. Generally, there was no image. Uh, that w- didn't come about until much later. Uh, in 1872, Congress passed another act that allowed the government to create their own postcards. Uh, so these government-printed postcards were uh, a bit less expensive than sending a letter. They became very popular for people to send uh, very brief messages uh, to folks uh, at, at a, a lesser rate. Uh, and what ended up happening happening is that individuals were either creating images on the back of the postcards or they were uh, gluing pictures to the back. Um, So the government then started allowing the private printing uh, of uh, images to appear on the the back or front of the postcard, depending on how you look at it. And on the other side, it was reserved strictly for the address. Um, And that came about right around 1898. Uh, They were called private postal cards. And then in 1901, the post office uh, issued uh, Post Office Order 1447, which officially changed the name from uh, private postal card to simply postcard. And that's essentially what we know today or what most people would associate that term with. That started in 1901. And from about 1901 to 1907, we have what is known as the, the golden age of, of postcards. Uh, and actually, that period stretched about 1915, a little bit later. Uh, and this is when they became incredibly popular for a, a means of uh, uh, communicating, uh, again, briefly with, with individuals uh, all over the globe, uh, but they also uh, became important for collectors. Uh, when people travel, they would usually uh, purchase postcards that would depict the area that they were in, uh, usually write a brief message, send it back to their friends and family back home, and uh, became kind of a, hey, look what I'm doing sort of thing, uh, and usually they'd follow it up with a letter. Uh, postcards sort of changed, at least the nature of them changed, after uh, at least leading up to the First World War, because prior to that period, most of the cards, at least the highest quality cards, were printed in Germany. When the First World War broke out, imports of postcards, these high quality, um, very realistic looking images, uh, colorized images, stopped essentially coming to the States. U.S. manufacturers began filling in that void, uh, but the quality essentially wasn't the same. So we can date postcards, again, based uh, based on the quality, uh, based on the time period, um, and also whether or not they allowed a divided back, which meant that a message could be uh, uh, listed next to the address on the back of the postcards. You've pulled some particularly interesting examples of Florida postcards from the collection. What do you have here? Well, like you said, Ben, we have over 14,000 postcards. So I just grabbed a few that I thought kind of illustrated um, the nature of Florida postcards. So if you can imagine, Florida, a big part of Florida's history, at least in the late 19th and early 20th century, was in, uh, wrapped up in tourism. Most people came to Florida as tourists, so they were eager to send exotic postcards back to their, their friends and family back home. Uh, what we're looking at now, this is one of the earliest that we have in the collection. Uh, it was actually mailed on November 12, 1904. It was printed in 1904. The image on the front is a steamboat on the Ocklawaha River. Fairly common, uh, isn't unusual. But what I find fascinating is actually the image and the date. So like I said, it was it was postmarked on November 12, 1904. This is four days after the 1904 election, which resulted in uh, Theodore Roosevelt being uh, elected uh, after uh, filling the uh, presidency after uh, President McKinley died in 1901. 
And on the front, the uh, author of this postcard writes, three cheers for Roosevelt from the sunny south, and then gives his uh, initials. And it was mailed from St. Augustine. It's interesting because uh, Roosevelt lost Florida, and Florida was very much a democratic state at that time, uh, and uh, Roosevelt was a Republican. Uh, but the the nature of postcards is, it, it varies widely, and different time periods reflect different societal changes. We have uh, images of uh, Seminole Indians. Here we have a, a real photo postcard, which is actually a photograph uh, that was produced with a, a Eastman Kodak actually started this program, but they would allow uh, people to take photographs and print these images directly onto a cardstock that uh, came with the um, a square on the back where a, a stamp could be placed uh, and a place for the address. So this is one of those real photo postcards of Seminole Indians right around 1905. Yeah, here we're looking at a colorized image of uh, people having a picnic on top of an Indian mound right around 1920. Uh, this is a fairly common postcard. It shows a crate filled with oranges, and it says, Greetings from Florida. Very common greeting card. This is a little bit different. A lot of uh, the postcards depict industry. Uh, here we have a phosphate pit uh, near um, uh, Tampa, Florida. This is a, a scenic view of the Suwannee River. Here's an interesting uh, shot of the gymnasium at the University of Florida. Uh, but this is dated 1907, when the University of Florida was actually in Lake City rather than in Gainesville. So this building doesn't exist anymore, which is another great uh, reason that uh, people collect uh, postcards and why they're so important historically, because many of these structures have long since been destroyed. So it was maybe the only representation of the image that exists today. Uh, we have photos of public docks, again, uh, city hall buildings, uh, and cemeteries. Uh, sometimes people decided to take a photo of a, an interesting cemetery like we have uh, here, which shows the Dade Monument up in St. Augustine. Well, with Facebook and texting and other forms of electronic communication, have postcards uh, become a thing of the past? Well, sending postcards may have become a thing of the past, but the collection of postcards is very much alive. And, and like I said, our, our collection of 14,000 postcards seems fairly large, but in the world of postcard collection, uh, it's fairly small. Uh, people spend their entire lives collecting postcards. Great. Well, thanks, Ben. Sure. Thank you. Ben DiBiase is Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. I hope you'll know. This is Florida Frontiers. The first professional football team in Florida was not the Dolphins or the Jaguars or the Bucks, As Robert Casanello from robertcasanello.com tells us, it was the Miami Seahawks. The team was located in Miami, and it was a team was called the Miami Seahawks. And they were part of the All-America Football Conference, a conference that was organized in 1944, uh, by Arch Ward, who was the sports editor of the Chicago Tribune, and who had in, was the inventor of the baseball's all-star game and the college all-star game uh, in football. Miami was obviously not a big league town at this point. It turns out Miami was the smallest of any of the cities that had an AAFC franchise. It turned out also that in the end, it probably did not have enough fan base to support it over time. That was Dr. Richard Cropo author of NFL Football, A History of America's New National Pastime. He spoke to me about the 1946 Miami Seahawks, the very first professional football team to call Florida home. The Seahawks were part of a short-lived All-American Football Conference, or the AAFC, that was a rival to the National Football League. The Seahawks only lasted one season, 
Dr. Cropot tells us why this new league and team emerged after World War II. Professional football was still at the margins. The NFL was at the margins. The AAFC certainly was at the margins. What the founders of the league were looking at in the late 40s was their belief that coming out of the war, there was going to be a kind of prosperity uh, in America, uh, and that that prosperity would generate more leisure time, and more leisure time could be transformed into more organized sport as entertainment. And a lot of people who invested in the AAFC, and some of the people who were investors in the NFL, were looking to make some money. Then there are always those people who get into professional sport because they're looking for exposure to promote themselves, to salve their own ego, and certainly that was involved with some owners as well. Dr. Cropot tells us why they struggled. Well, I think if they had a winning season, they might have, they might have survived. I don't think they were ever going to make a lot of money because it, the city just wasn't big enough. You just weren't going to draw that many people out. If people were going to go watch football, they were probably going to go watch the Miami Hurricanes. And you had to give them some reason to come to watch the Seahawks. Seahawks didn't have any big stars any big players, so why go there? Initially, they drew 25, 26,000 fans for the first couple of games, but they were losing almost all the time. They lost seven out of their first eight games, and the fan base just disappeared. Uh, In the second half of the season, they were drawing about 9,000 fans. They wound up facing bankruptcy at the end, and uh, they couldn't get enough money to keep the team going. The Seahawks had a difficult relationship with the Cleveland Browns. One of the things that really hurt them initially is they had to play their first three games on the road. And they had to play their first game against Cleveland and the Cleveland Browns. And it turns out the Cleveland Browns was the best, by far the best team in the new league, probably the best team in professional football. Certainly by 1950, they were the best team in professional football. But many people would argue even in 46, they were that good. Uh, the, the opening game they lost, I think, 44 to nothing, and it was downhill from there, as they say. Later in the season, when Cleveland came to play Miami at home, the game would be notorious for the racial climate that was present in the city. Cleveland had two African-American players, and when they were scheduled to come and play in Miami, uh, and when they were, they played, of course, the first game in Cleveland uh, against Miami, and there was no issue there. But when they were scheduled to come down to Miami to play, first of all, the the Miami ownership notified uh, the Cleveland Browns and Paul Brown that they they should not bring their African-American players, that there was a law in Florida against interracial competition in sport, and they would not be allowed to play. And there was a good deal of consternation in the Browns organization about what to do and whether to challenge this. And in the end, I think what persuaded them not to bring the players was there were a number of threats. Uh, that came to the players from people in Miami. And in the end, Paul Brown thought, you know, this was not going to be a difficult game. He didn't have to have all of his players. They were going to win easily. And why risk? Uh, Why put somebody at risk uh, for that? And so they didn't uh, bring their players. Uh, And so it's one one of those another little interesting dark moments in the history of segregation in sport at a time period uh, when sport was desegregating. The NFL desegregated in 1946, uh, and, and essentially the AAFC never had to desegregate because they never had segregation. They had African-American players from the beginning. That was Dr. Richard Corpo, and I'm Robert Casanello with Florida Frontiers.
You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please join us right here again next week. You can also find us on the web at myfloridahistory.org or listen as a podcast. Don't miss the television series Florida Frontiers on your local PBS station. Production assistance for Florida Frontiers comes from Ben DiBiase and Robert Casanello. The program is edited by John White. Have a great week. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Cultural Affairs, the Florida Council of Arts and Culture, and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund, the Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, and by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach.